The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right, audience participation. Raise your hand if you're a fan of holiday lights. I just just wanted to see who the Scrooges were. Okay, less than five of you. I'll take it. We, we all love holiday lights. It's a silly question at this time of year. We, we all love them. Maybe, uh, I mean, we obviously put them on our tree. Maybe you've hung them around your house. Perhaps some of you have seen the dazzling display at Ginter Garden or uh, driven out to the West End, and West End and seen some of those massive homes with an elaborate light display. And we, you don't even want to think when you see one of those homes about the electricity bill. But there's just something about the month of December where we just kind of take a break from worrying about the electricity bill. We love lights. But there's a reason you have not, I promise, no matter how much you love lights, over the course of December, you have not one time gone to check them out during your lunch break. Because there wouldn't be anything to see. It wouldn't be impressive at all. You need the backdrop of a night sky in order for the brilliance of lights to be seen. And in our passage this morning, we encounter history's greatest light against the backdrop of its deepest darkness. Please take a Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few available in the back, um, and my friend Sheldon back there would be glad to bring you one. Just raise your hand if you need one, and he'll walk you a Bible. Um, We're in Isaiah chapter 9, and we've come to the end of our Advent series where for four weeks we've been looking at four Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, but each from a different angle. First, we, we saw the promised snake crusher, and then we looked at the promised shepherd, and last week at the promised servant, and this morning now at the promised king. 75% of the Bible is Old Testament, which means it took place before the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. 75% of the Bible happened before Jesus came to earth. 
And Isaiah was one of the major prophets God raised up to be his mouthpiece to Israel, his covenant people. One interesting thing you may have never noticed about Isaiah is the way it's broken up, the way it's divided, it's almost like the whole Bible in miniature. How many books are there in the Bible? 66. How many Old Testament? 37. How many New Testament? I'm sorry, 39. How many New Testament? 27. 66 books, 39 old, 27 new. How many chapters are there in Isaiah? 66. The first 39 focus primarily on the darkness of impending judgment and exile. But there's a discernible shift at chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. And so the final 27 chapters of Isaiah focus on hope and life after exile, the restoration that God will bring on the other side of judgment. Here's what I think is the main idea of Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. The main idea. Christmas is a rescue operation. Christmas is a rescue operation. Obviously, I'm giving you this main idea as a Christian, okay, because this was written 700 years before the first Christmas. But as Christians, we now can look back on Isaiah chapter 9 and know that Christmas is a rescue operation. The newborn king came to light up the darkness. That's what I think is the main idea. Christmas is a rescue operation. The newborn king came to light up the darkness. We'll think about this in in two simple points as we make our way through these verses. First, the promised light. We'll see that in verses one to five. And second, the promised child, verses six and seven. The promised light and the promised child. First, the promised light. Look at the very last verse of Isaiah chapter eight. The very last verse of Isaiah eight. Remember, Isaiah is a prophet, which means he's functioning as kind of an old covenant prosecutor against God's rebellious people. He's foretelling doom. Assyria, he's saying, Assyria is going to invade. And so he declares there at the end of chapter 8, verse 22, they, he's talking about Israel, they will look toward the earth. Israel will look toward the earth, which already is a signal Things are not going well. Israel is not looking toward heaven. They're looking toward the earth. Their gaze is focused on what's before their eyes. They will look toward the earth, and what are they going to see? Isaiah 8, 22. They will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's hard to imagine a bleaker picture. Human beings, and I don't just mean humans generically, I mean every single one in this room, every single one of you. Human beings were created to know and enjoy and reflect and image God, to to image, to reflect his character and glory in the world. That's why you have breath in your lungs. That's why you exist, not for yourself, but for your maker, to showcase his splendor and his glory and his worth. 
But Adam and Eve, our very first parents, failed in that assignment. They did not give God the honor and the praise he was due. And so what happened? They were exiled. Exiled from the Garden of Eden and from God's very presence. But not before, as we saw a few weeks ago, not before God planted a promise that one day he would send a seed of the woman, a male descendant of Eve, who would deliver God's people once and for all by decisively crushing Satan's head. Eventually, the the Lord chose Abraham and promised to to make Israel a great nation with descendants, offspring as numerous as stars and sand. And he told the Israelites in no uncertain terms after giving them the promised land, if you obey my word, it's going to go well with you in the land. But if you don't obey my word, if you look to other things for what I alone can give you, then it's not going to go well with you at all. You too will be exiled from the land, just as your first parents were from the garden. And of course, one reason that the Old Testament is so long, if you haven't noticed, is because it's the sad saga of precisely how that idolatry and disobedience happened over and over and over again. And so Isaiah is thundering against the Israelites on the eve of their exile from the land. This isn't just arising out of nowhere. God has for centuries promised them that if they turn their back on him, he will banish them from the land. And yet, and yet, this promised judgment won't be the end of the story. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that's a really precious word in your Bible. Nevertheless, that's a word of hope. (laughs) There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Here, Isaiah flashes forward beyond the Assyrian invasion. Why does he mention of all the tribes of Israel, why does he mention these two, Zebulun and Naphtali? Well, because they were the northernmost tribes, which meant that when the Assyrians invaded from the north, they were going to be the ones who bore the brunt of the attack. And yet Isaiah says, though you're going to bear the brunt of that invasion, you are also going to, in the future, be the focal point of unimaginable honor. Verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Literally, it says, on those living in the death shadow, a light has flashed. Notice Isaiah is forecasting the future in the past tense because it's that certain. Judgment will not be the final word. Exile will not be the final word. The darkness is going to yield. It will give way to light. Here's the thing about darkness. It has no power to overcome itself. There is nothing intrinsic to darkness that can overcome 
itself. Nothing intrinsic to the dark that can make things light. Therefore, if you're stuck in the death shadow, your only hope is for something to stream in from the outside, which is why verse 2, and this is why it's so important to read your Bibles carefully. One of my jobs as a pastor is to model and train for you how to read your own Bibles throughout the week. Notice in verse 2, it doesn't say, from those living in darkness, a light has dawned. It says, on those. Light is not coming from those in the darkness. It's coming on them. In other words, this is a present from God, not a production of man. And this is how desperate the situation is for every one of us. Again, this isn't just a pious religious talk for human beings in general. God wants to make eye contact with you this morning. See, the world says, and if you're, a, if you're a young person, I want you especially to listen up here. The world will tell you that there's plenty of darkness in your life and that the darkness in your life exists outside of you, outside of you. In, in your lousy parents or your terrible friends or your hard circumstances. And the world will say, the light, the light, the solution exists within you. You just need to, that's why you've been raised. The culture has raised you on mantras like embrace yourself, discover yourself, express yourself, believe in yourself. In other words, look to the light within but my friend, while that may sound appealing, empowering, it's actually dehumanizing because it's actually a lie. Because while it's true that there is plenty of darkness, I mean, you don't have to take long to look around you in this world. There is plenty of darkness outside of you. The greatest darkness in your life resides within it's the self-centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed bent of every human heart, including my own. And if you don't know that to be true about you, then you don't yet know yourself very well. Every human heart is, is curved in on itself at the expense of others and certainly to the neglect of Almighty God. The story goes that about a hundred years ago, a British newspaper posed a question to its readers. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? To which the writer G.K. Chesterton submitted a response. Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That's the attitude of someone who understands where the real darkness lies. Do you see how different the logic of the world is from the logic of the Bible? But the world says that your greatest darkness exists outside of you, but the light is within. The Bible says that the greatest darkness exists inside of you, but the light, the solution, the answer, the rescue must come from without. And God's word consistently sounds both notes. God loves us enough to tell the truth. For example, in the passage containing the New Testament's most famous verse, John 3, beginning in verse 16, 
for God so loved, you can actually turn there because uh, it's important for you to know where the book of John is. So keep your finger in Isaiah. Turn with me to John chapter three. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One gospel from four angles. This is the gospel according to John chapter three, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now pause. If you bristle a little bit at that, if you like the first part of verse 18, whoever believes is not condemned, great. But then you bristle at the second part, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. And the Bible knows you better than it, you know yourself. It anticipates that you're bristling right now, which is why it says, starting in verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And then let your eyes fall to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the greatest news you will hear today. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You can turn back to Isaiah 9. The, the famous atheist Stephen Hawking once quipped, religion is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. To which the Christian philosopher John Lennox replied, atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. That's not just a clever retort. That's the revelation of God. That's what we just read as we just heard, people are afraid of the light because it exposes the darkness within them. Maybe that describes you this morning. You know, you've discovered the hard way that, that there is no life, no light, no peace, no joy to be found in the death shadow. But friend, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay stuck, caught, trapped in the death shadow. There's a way out. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this, and, and you can pray this morning that God would add this to your autobiography. For God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's where you are, naturally, the domain of darkness. For God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Look, we are not here this morning inviting you 
like good religious people to some abstract thing called faith. I don't care about some abstract thing called faith as if it's just this kind of floating noun like a balloon that you either have or you don't. That's not what faith is. We're not summoning you to an abstract thing called faith. We're calling you to a historical person named Jesus. Despite what you may have heard, despite what you may even want to believe as a defense mechanism, faith is not leaping in the dark. Faith is trusting him, the light that shines in the darkness. Well, verse three continues forecasting joy on the other side of judgment. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you, God, as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. This language of multiplying the nation is reminiscent of the very first chapters of your Bible, God's charge to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And then several chapters later, the promise to Abraham that Israel would become a great nation as, we, as I mentioned earlier, with offspring as numerous as stars and sand. See, even despite his people's stubborn sin, Isaiah saying, God is going to make good on his most ancient promises. And I love that little phrase, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. Read it carefully. It doesn't say they rejoice before the harvest. It says they, or, you know, they rejoice, in other words, before their circumstances. No, it's they rejoice before you, God. You are their highest treasure. And, and then the phrase, they rejoice before you, how? As people rejoice at the harvest. I, I think this may be an echo of Psalm chapter four. Remember that verse, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your favor on us, O Lord. And then the psalmist says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Which in that culture meant basically when you win the lottery and when all of your health reports are perfect and when your family is exactly the way you hoped it would be. When everything's going your way, the psalmist says, no, I have more joy in you, God. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. Believer, has that been the cry of your heart lately? Where have you been looking for joy, for gladness, for security, for peace? It's so easy at this time of year to look for that stuff in holiday, festivities, warm memories, a picture-perfect family, rather than finding it in something you can never lose. Because all of those things, as great as they may be, the holiday festivities, the warm memories, the picture-perfect family, fill in the blank for you, whatever that is, it is a fleeting and fragile thing. Don't lean your weight on something that will break and give way before you. Lean your weight and your hope on God so that your heart can say, you have put more joy in my heart even in the midst of darkness than they have, than others have, than my neighbors have, even when everything goes their way. 
I found more joy in you, God, than, than my neighbors could possibly find in a happy health report or a Christmas bonus or a, or a family experience in any fleeting thing. Because again, your joy is in something you can never lose. But lest the prophecy of verse 3 create in Israel a kind of triumphalist, chest-thumping spirit. I mean, after all, Isaiah has been telling them they're going into exile, but then now he's saying that's not going to be the final word. On the other side of darkness, there's going to be light. On the other side of judgment, there's going to be joy. You can imagine that this might give them a little bit of a swagger. Like, look at us. Like, watch out, enemies. We're going to be the victors after all. So Isaiah hastens to clarify, verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What in the world are these two verses saying? Well, they're a callback to the book of Judges when the Israelites under the leadership of Gideon conquered the Midianites in a kind of laughable way. Maybe some of you will remember this story. God looked out on Israel before their battle with Midian and he looked out on the, the swelling ranks, the swelling army of Israel and he said, I've got to thin it out because if they win, they're going to be able to conclude that the victory was theirs. So he thins out their ranks and then he thins out the ranks some more and then he thins them out some more until, until there would be no possible way to mistake, whether on Midian's side or on Israel's side, no possible way to conclude that the victory that he would bring had anything to do with Israel. So verses four and five are simultaneously meant to give Israel hope while also humbling them in the process. God's saying, you're so helpless that you can't extricate yourself from this predicament. I am going to fight for you. You're not even gonna need military gear, as it were. That's how one way, how sovereign, how unilateral this victory will be. And therefore, you're gonna enter into the fruits of a victory you did not win. And sure enough, the very two northern areas Isaiah mentions, Zebulun and Naphtali, who will receive, remember, the brunt of the Assyrian invasion, you know they only show up as a pair one other time in your Bible? Matthew chapter 4. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first areas to fall to the Assyrians will also be the very first areas to see the Messiah's light. 
where the death shadow is at its deepest and darkness, the light of the world will dawn. The promised light. Point two, the promised child. The promised child. Verse six, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. Talk about a a startling shift. I mean, surely the original hearers, you may be used to language like this because you've come to Christmas services before, but surely the original hearers were not expecting to hear this after all of this. Uh, Hey, if, if you look on the horizon, you may just be able to see the glint of Assyrian swords. They're coming after you. They're going to destroy you. But don't worry. One day there's going to be a baby. I mean, if if this sounds ridiculous to you too, then respectfully, you just don't yet know what Christmas is all about. As Ray Ortland puts it, quote, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. His power is so far superior to the Assyrias and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies, you you care about justice? That's great. God cares about it more and he cared about it before you. Ray Orland says, his answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Verse 6 forecasts the pivotal moment of salvation history when the author of time steps onto his own stage in the form of a human being, truly God and truly man, come to save the world. And notice that just as the victory, as we saw in verses 4 and 5, is not going to be this cooperative joint endeavor. No, the victory is going to be won by God alone. So this great future hope in the form of an infant will come from God alone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is deserved. No, to us a son is given given. It's the language of a gift, which is precisely what Jesus is. As we heard earlier from John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave. The Father sending the Son by the Spirit. He's the ultimate gift we desperately need, but do not deserve. Now, perhaps some of the Israelites would have, at this point, started to, to lean in and, and something would have clicked. Like, oh, oh, that child? Like, that child? The, the one we've been waiting for? The, the offspring of David? And Abraham? And Eve? Yes, Isaiah says, look for that king. Verse 6, and the government will be on his shoulders. This is not referring to modern day politics. That is way too small. 
This is referring to worldwide, unbreakable, unstoppable dominion over all things. The oppression of sin is on our shoulders. The authority of Almighty God is on His. But most amazingly, Christmas is about the fact that the one with all authority on his shoulders and all glory on his shoulders didn't just lay aside that glory. He also came to take on something else. What else did he take on his shoulders? Our punishment. No wonder Jesus can look you in the eye and say, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, so you want to talk about what's on people's shoulders? Here's Jesus' offer to you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as if this news weren't encouraging and assuring and galvanizing enough, Isaiah fills out the picture even more. Middle of verse 6, and he, that is this promised one, and he will be called four things, four exalted titles. First of all, wonderful counselor, literally a wonder of a counselor. A wonder of a counselor. Stop imagining a therapist on a couch. That's not what's going on. This is a royal description, even a divine description. Later in Isaiah 28, he will say, all this comes from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Yahweh. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And it is that same creator Lord, Yahweh, we meet on the pages of the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2.3, Paul speaks of knowing the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom, so Christ, inside of whom, so if you're going to find what I'm about to say, you've got to look in Christ. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As I've said before, he is not a vending machine, but he is, according to your Bible, a treasure chest, an endless reservoir of help and wisdom for the believer in need. And this wonder child, this wonder child brimming with supernatural wisdom will also be, number two, mighty God. Isaiah could hardly be more clear. The promised child, the wonder child, will also be God himself. God come in victorious power. That's that's why he doesn't just say God. He says mighty God, which is the greatest juxtaposition in the history of the world. Omnipotence, all powerfulness in a feeding trough. The baby from Bethlehem will be the son of God, the second person of the eternal trinity, enfleshed, incarnate, which means that even while lying in the manger, he will be upholding the universe with the word of his power. As the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon marveled, is he not rightly called wonderful? 
infinite and yet an infant. Eternal, yet born of a woman. Supporting the universe, yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms. King of angels, yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things, yet the carpenter's despised son. Wonderful are you, O Jesus, and that shall be your name forever. But he's not just wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's also, number three, everlasting father. Don't be thrown, don't be distracted by the fact that the son of God is being described like a father. Isaiah is not confused. He's not saying that the baby will be God the father, the first person of the Trinity. No, he's simply saying that the promised one will be father-like in the way he cares for his people. It's, it's talking about his character. And also, you'll see there, his eternality. It's a fancy word, eternality. That means he's the everlasting father, the father of eternity, the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, which is Greek for the A and the Z, the beginning and the end, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And my friend, do you know what these exalted titles about Jesus mean? They mean you need to get off the fence. They mean that he is overqualified. I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm, I'll, I'm wasting your time if I don't just level with you and, and tell you the truth. He is overqualified to just be someone you mildly respect a couple times a year. Come on. He is overqualified. He, he flung the galaxies into existence. He put breath in your lungs. And you think that you can show up a couple times a year just to pay a, an annual religion tax or get your respectability card stamped to keep him off your back for another year? As Tim Keller puts it, if Jesus Christ really is mighty God and everlasting father, you can't just like him. Once the people around Jesus realized what he was claiming about himself, don't take Keller's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Read the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you will see this. Once the people around Jesus realized what he was actually claiming about himself, either they were scared of him or furious with him, or they knelt down before him and worshiped. But nobody simply liked him. Nobody said, He's so inspiring. He makes me want to live a better life. No, if the baby born at Bethlehem is the mighty God, then you must serve him completely. Don't reduce him. Don't reduce him, friend, to a convenient size you can stick in your pocket, a convenient size you can safely ignore. You will be able to ignore him but it won't be safe. He came the first time in weakness, Merry Christmas, but he's coming again in power. He came the first time to bear judgment, but he's coming again to bring it. And the Bible says one day, every knee in the universe, including yours, and every mouth in the universe, including yours, will bow down and confess that Jesus is Lord. The only question is, when 
will you do so? You're going to bow down and confess to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and that you're not. But the question is when? Will you wait until you have to acknowledge him then as your judge? Or will you humble yourself and embrace him now as your savior before it's too late? Make Christmas 2022 the last Christmas that you just played religion. The, the, the last Christmas when you just, in your life, when you just went through the motions in order to be pious or respectable or to keep a family member happy. Come this morning in humble trust to the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father you need. And when you come to him, you will find him to be number four the Prince of Peace. Not everyone in this room is pursuing Jesus, but every single one of you is pursuing peace. We talk about it, dream about it, post about it, plan for it. But peace sure has a way of haunting us, taunting us, eluding us, doesn't it? I mean, it does not mark our world. And I don't just mean distant headlines from Russia and Ukraine or Israel and Hamas. Peace eludes those in the securest neighborhoods, the richest professions, the happiest families. We can't find peace in our surroundings. We can't find peace in our hearts. We need someone to break in from the outside to bring it. We need a prince of peace. Verse 7, of the greatness, the, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can you visualize this picture this promise, this experience, every one of you in this room, religious or not, wants this. You want to live in a kingdom of ever-increasing justice and ever-increasing peace and ever-increasing joy. No elusiveness, no exceptions, no expiration date. And the reason it's going to happen for some of you the reason you can know this promise will hold, the reason you can take verse seven to the bank is because the baby in the manger didn't stay there. If Jesus had stayed in the manger, we would have never heard of him, but he didn't. He grew up to live the life you have failed to live and then to die the death you deserved to die. And then he was put into a tomb but he didn't stay there. If Jesus had stayed in the tomb, you never would have heard of him. But he got up. He vacated his tomb in triumph. And because the manger is empty and the tomb is empty, we can have confidence that the throne of the universe is not. No other religion talks like this. No other religion, philosophy, or worldview you will ever encounter talks like this. Each one insists in some form or fashion that achieving peace 
securing that elusive thing, peace, is on you. That's, that's not a very encouraging message. That's not a very comforting message. And that's why religion is so exhausting. Because as rebels against God, we are not the solution in the equation. We are the problem. But 2,000 years ago, on that very first Christmas, the child in the manger was launching an invasion. Remember we said a few weeks ago, Advent is the first beachhead in God's assault on sin and death. The child in the manger was launching an invasion in order to bring about the kind of peace that none of us can manufacture on our own. This is what Christianity offers. This is what Jesus offers you this morning. You can receive the peace of God through trusting Jesus. You can enjoy the peace of God through following Jesus. And you can spread the peace of God through proclaiming Jesus. Friend, if you want to experience peace in your life, you've got to stop looking within yourself. You've got to look away from yourself to the source. Because the real thing is only found there. It's not found in a successful job or secure neighborhood. It's not found in food or exercise or travel or warm memories or holiday cheer. It's not found in a loving family. It's not even found in a vibrant ministry. In the final analysis, friend, in the final analysis, peace is only found in the prince of it. Who wouldn't want to live under his rule and reign? Why, why wouldn't you want this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace? Why wouldn't you want this king as your king? Turn from your sin and put your trust in him and make him yours today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for coming to light up the darkness the darkness in our world, and above all, Lord, the darkness in our hearts. We thank you for being the light we so desperately need. Lord, you are the light when all other lights go out. And we praise you, and we thank you, and we ask that this morning, and this Christmas, and this coming year, you would be our great Prince of Peace. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.